Welcome to the J. Scott Outdoors podcast. Today is going to be a fun episode. I've got Christian Epps on the line. He's an Arizona resident uh, about to go on his first archery elk hunt uh, in the state of Arizona. Christian, I'll let you do a little intro on yourself. Tell everyone what unit you have. And you've got a bunch of questions. I figured it would be best just to uh, record this and uh, maybe some other people could get some value out of it as well. Awesome. Thanks, Jay. Um, I really appreciate this. I, I have uh, quite a few questions. Um, like you said, this is my very first um, archery elk tag. I, uh, and my, th- I was lucky enough to draw a unit one tag um, in the rut this year. I've been waiting for this tag for a very long time. Um, I grew up in like the Heber Overguard area. I went to high school there but and always hunted 3c but never spent much time at all in unit one um and then i've never had really much experience at all hunting archery elk so i'm full of tons of questions jay and excited to to pick your brain a little bit awesome let's just get right into it uh for sure so unit one arizona for those listeners that don't know where unit one is it's on the eastern part of the state it actually borders New Mexico, so the eastern part of Unit 1 borders the, the New Mexico line. Uh, it also is kind of uh, over there by the White Mountain Apache uh, Reservation, has some border on it. Um, it's kind of over in the Pine Top uh, area, uh, Pine Top Sholo area to give a little context, and then kind of over on the eastern edge of the unit um, or, well, I guess more on the eastern side of the unit, uh, you've got uh, Alpine. Uh, so definitely eastern Arizona. Christian, let's just dive in and, and uh, get your questions answered. Okay. Now, Jay, some of my first questions are kind of about, about your preseason and, and what to do to prepare um, before opening day. Um, and having not spent very much time in Unit 1 at all, I'm kind of trying to figure out, where to start and how soon should I start scouting? I mean, I know they, the bulls have just now kind of come into their horn growth, and, and I know that their patterns change so much during the rut, but how soon do you start scouting in a unit you've never hunted before? Yeah, so unit one is one of those um, units that a bunch of the unit got burned uh, with that wallow fire. So uh, you take a unit that had uh, really dark timber and, you know, open kind of meadows, they call them sienegas, kind of open um, meadows there for the elk to feed in. Well, now it's been burned. So I would tell you that, uh, you know, we're kind of last week of July right now, uh, and the bulls are pretty much uh, full grown. Uh, they're, they're still in velvet, but they should be probably rubbing their velvet here starting about August 1st. Uh, they should be, you know, probably all of the bulls should be fully rubbed by, I would think, about the 15th of August. Um, and you talk about where to start. You bring up a good point that those bulls, um, where they're at and where they've been all summer uh, is going to change at some point in time when they start rubbing uh, the velvet off their antlers. It seems like about the time they start rubbing their velvet, they make their transition uh, to the quote-unquote rutting grounds, the areas where they go year after year. Uh, and I firmly believe that bulls um, have kind of a historical pattern of where they like to travel and where they like to go chase cows. Um, but each bull is different. Uh, as far as when to start, I think now is probably a good time. 
Um, I would tell you if we had this conversation back in the spring and you had time, I would tell you to start driving the roads, uh, start doing your Google Earth maps, your OnX maps, and start you know, doing your preliminary map work. Um, what I like to do is I like to get on Google Earth and on OnX uh, simultaneously, I like to plot out you know, the unit boundaries. I like to highlight those in a certain color. I like to put in my highways on Google Earth in green. So every highway within the unit is green. All of the other roads that are pertinent roads, I like to do in white. Um, and you can then import those data points as well as water tanks, glassing points, all of that stuff, you can import that from Google Earth into Onyx. Uh, the reason I like to do it uh, like that is then it's imported into Onyx and on my phone app, uh, it's, it's, as soon as it goes on the Onyx desktop, it immediately transfers to the, the phone app on your phone. So when you do go hit the, the unit, uh, you know, hit the ground running, you already have a mapping device on your phone that acts as a GPS. Uh, you can then, when you're driving uh, the unit, you can have your tracker on. So it's, in essence, also putting tracks on the roads that you've driven. Uh, when you're, you know, you're getting out to check water holes, you can mark new water holes, new points of interest that you find. So um, I, you know, you, you could have been doing that two months ago, but uh, you know, I don't think you're really missing much as long as you have the ability to, to get up there um, and start poking around. One of the things you've got to keep in mind about right now is um, up until about the 20, 20th or so of August, and, and even still some movement after that, but uh, a lot is going to change between now and, say, the 25th or the last, very last few days of August. Um, once you get to those last few days of August, those elk are pretty much going to be into those grounds where they're going to be looking for cows. So in other words, if you were to go up this weekend and glass off a big knob and find a big giant velvet bull, I would tell you that there's a high likelihood that that bull is not going to be anywhere near that country. A lot of these bulls are moving, you know, 10 to 20 miles even further in some cases. So in your initial scouting, it's never too early, but I would be focusing more on, um, you know, where are the points of interest where I want to hunt, what country looks better to me, uh, where are the glassing knobs, uh, you know, where are the areas uh, of green up? You know, this year uh, the, the monsoon rains have been late, uh, I know we had really good winter moisture and spring moisture, um, but, you know, maybe you get up there and you realize that there are some areas that are a lot greener and then some areas that, you know, the grass, it just looks pretty dry. Um, and certainly Unit 1 is not one of those units that is pretty arid. It's one of our most um, moisture-rich units in the state. For those of you listening that have, you know, Unit 9, 10, 7, you know, six, some of these other units, um, definitely look for those areas where it's physically to your eye, you see green and you see it looks a lot fresher, and then you'll drive miles and you'll see areas that look dry, the grass is, you know, yellow or brown and it's not green. Well, the elk are going to move around within your unit and find the greenest spot. 
Um, but as far as I think you can start right now familiarizing yourself with the unit, I would be talking with anybody that you can talk to that, that has hunted Unit 1. Um, from what I, I've hunted Unit 1 before, and I have not hunted it since the fire, uh, but one of the things I will tell you, just like if you're used to 3C, Christian, is um, a lot of those elk gravitated in 3C to any place that had been burned. And the same thing is in Unit 1. Some of the historical places in Unit 1 that are not burned might not have as many elk as, you know, a lot of the unit that has been burned. Uh, another thing to consider is, in those areas when you're driving around or looking on your aerial maps that have been completely moonscaped, uh, the elk, if they don't have cover to go bed down, uh, they're, they're, you know, they're going to choose those mosaic areas where the, there is green timber and green trees and then their access to the burn. Um, but you can pretty much from an aerial view and from driving around find those areas of timber and those areas of mosaic where they have enough cover and then predict where they're going to bed and where they're going to be. So um, don't get too caught up on particular bulls you're seeing right now. It is a good chance to get an inventory of what antler growth looks like, uh, but until about the last few days of August and definitely once you get into September, you can pretty much bet the, the weekends before the hunt, if you start seeing a bull in a particular meadow, um, especially if he's with cows, that he's going to be somewhere pretty close to there once your hunt starts. That makes perfect sense. Um, now, I've spent quite a bit of time on Onyx trying to do just that, some of that e-scouting, um, being that I live so far away from the unit now. But one thing I've done is I've gone and I've marked all of um, the water sources I can find, all of the tanks I can find on Google Earth and on Onyx. I am I wasting my time? I mean, being that Unit 1 is, is notoriously known to, to hold a lot of water, are they going to be drinking out of, you know, every rut in the road rather than hitting those tanks, or is it important to have that information? Well, I think it's super important to have the information in case in case the monsoons really dry up, which, you know, the, the really the monsoons start around July 4th, and, and we really haven't had the widespread monsoons like normal year. It's actually been a dry monsoon year. So I don't think it's a waste at all because in the event that, you know, we get a few showers here and there before the hunt, but let's say that we get a couple weeks of dry where everything dries up, those puddles will dry up, um, I think knowing and having, you know, Onyx already has a bunch of the uh, tanks and such marked, but, you know, marking everything that you can when you get in the field, especially if, you know, if, if you have time to do that kind of stuff, all of that can help you. Uh, and then once you start focusing on certain areas, you'll know by looking at your map, okay, here's where the dark timber is, here's where they're probably feeding, here's their options for, for water, and they're going to go to one of those options of water. Um, you know, Unit 1 does have some creeks. It does have probably more live water than any unit in the state of Arizona, so that can be a little difficult to figure out what they're doing, um, especially, you know, if, it, if all of a sudden we get in a wet monsoon cycle and it's raining like crazy, yeah, they'll be spread out and they'll be a little hard to figure out. 
but you get a week or so of dry weather and all of that data that you have and all of those data points that you've been working on uh, help you. So, and, and not only that, it also helps you familiarize yourself with the unit, and it's nice to be chasing bulls, and they're going in one direction, going in one direction. You're thinking, what the heck are they going to? Well, you already know, hey, they're headed right for a tank because I already have it marked, and I know right where they're going. Sometimes you can beeline around. Eat. Sometimes you can even get in a vehicle and haul butt around and you know, get to the tank before they even get there by knowing that that tank is there. So, you know... I would be also focusing on your Onyx on high points, how to get up to certain glassy knobs, um, ridge lines. With that burn area, um, you know, you can walk a ridge line and have pretty good advantage, especially if you pick a ridge line that's, you know, quite a bit higher and gives you more elevation than some of the other country. Um, you can literally walk and kind of walk in glass, walk in glass, um, and not necessarily have to be on a particular cone peak or high point. Um, so make sure you also kind of get a sense of, of you know, where the ridge lines are that are open and, you know, a, a, a particular ridge line where you might be able to see a couple layers, um, you know, over the top of one ridge. And the way it lays, you actually can see quite a bit of country. So unit one went from a unit that's not real glassing friendly to a unit that is extremely glassing friendly. Yeah, with all that burn, that makes sense. Now, Jay, my tag is for, for unit one, 2B, and 2C. And, and growing up, I always heard stories of guys, you know, um, killing big bulls out in that juniper country. I mean, is that more of like these, these are local guys that know where these bulls are at, or should I be considering 2B or 2C? I mean... You don't want so if big. It, yeah. It's just if it were me, yeah, if it were me, I would really focus on unit one. Um, a lot of what you hear when you were growing up was when it was one, two, B, two, C, but the, remember the fire wasn't there. Um, the fire, from everything that I know, did not hit in two, B, two, C very much. Um, also, they've done a lot of depredation and what have you in those areas of 2B and 2C, and I just don't think it is what it used to be. That's not saying that there can't be a monster bull, but I would say being your first archery elk tag in the state of Arizona, if I were you, I would probably concentrate on Unit 1. I would probably concentrate on some of those um, higher-density areas. Um, there's still plenty of juniper country in Unit 1, uh, particularly on the north side of Unit 1 and on the east side of Unit 1. Um, so, you know, if there's times when you want to get out in the junipers and, you know, get out of the pines a little bit, uh, you know, that's one thing that's nice about Unit 1. Well, there's a bunch of things that's nice, but one of the things is, you know, with the highway structures that are there, you can literally be hunting on the far east end over on the New Mexico line and the same afternoon, you, or, you know, that morning and then the next, that afternoon, you could be hunting on the far north edge, uh, you know, up in some of those cinder cone country, uh, up, in the, up in the pinion juniper there as well, and or, you know, be over there on the west side right on the res line up by Mount Baldy. Um, and, and all the way down at the Black River. So the access in Unit 1 is pretty darn good, and you can use those highways pretty efficiently to uh, get around in the unit. And, you know, that 
I don't know how much data you've gathered on, you know, talking to guys and getting, you know, kind of areas to try and what have you, but I would make sure that um, you at least camp in a real centralized location being your first year uh, if you don't know where you're going to hunt, where you can kind of go every direction. And then if you end up finding, you know, uh, pockets that you really like, you can always move your camp uh, and, you know, kind of focus in on a certain area. Uh, but, you know, one of the benefits of having those arterial road structures of those highways and even some of the great gravel and cinder roads is you can really access and get around in the unit pretty good. But it's a big unit too. So, you know, you, you, you don't want to get too spread out, but you certainly can if, if you're, you know, willing to travel. So now, Jay, when you say pick in um, a camping spot, like kind of in the middle of the unit, are you, when you pick a, a spot to camp, I mean, are you trying to, to stay away from where you're, you're planning on hunting, or does it really matter? I mean, I know there's going to be campers all throughout that unit, but should I be try to to put myself in a location that's a few miles away from where I really want to be? What's your thought? Um, I think it doesn't matter really in Unit One. Those elk are so used to the summer traffic of campers and what have you. I mean, I literally think you could camp um, in any place where there's a campsite, even if it's like, hey, literally walking from my camp, there's bulls bugling, or I you know, done a loop and seen a bunch of rubs and realized that it's a good rutting area, or I've talked to so-and-so and they've told me, you know, that this is good. It, it, it doesn't bother those elk um, at all. Um, you know, if it was a case where you had a giant bull and people knew you were watching a giant bull, then yeah, I probably would try and be a little bit uh, picky on where I camped as to, um, you know, not have people, you know, give away where I'm at. Um, probably being your first elk hunt, you probably don't have to worry with, you know, people chasing you down, knowing that you're chasing some big giant bull. Um, you know, the other thing, too, is a lot of times people will set their camp where it's very, very accessible for if you have people coming to help you hunt or what have you, that they can easily get in and get out. Um, I've seen the other side of the spectrum, and I'm kind of one of these that sometimes, you know, I go, I go at it really hard, and I like to take, you know, I like to take a good hour, hour and a half nap right during the day. And so, if I'm in such an easy spot that, you know, they, oh, Jay's over there, and you know, constantly knocking on my camper door or my tent door, um, I used to hang a sign that says, "I'm napping. Someone better be dying if you're going to wake me up," <laughs> um, because you know, a lot of times on those elk hunts, I'd, I'd be 30 days, I'd be there you know, two weeks before the season starts, I'd be there the whole two weeks, and then usually, you know, I'd have an early rifle or a muzzleloader hunter uh, thereafter. So, um, you know, 30, 35 days in a row, um, I, I, I operate better if I can get that hour, hour and a half nap right during the middle of the day. So sometimes camping off, just off the beaten path is, you know, where everybody doesn't know where you're at is a good thing as well. Right. Now, Jay, one question I have, too, um, that I've been considering a lot is kind of my gear setup. Um, I'm very, very novice to archery hunting. I I did, I always have done the uh, over-the-counter archery deer tags, and I've killed a deer with my bow, um, but it's always been hand-me-down bows and, and kind of whatever I found laying around. Um, and so this year, I've, I've got my own bow, and I've tried to, to spend a lot of time for the last four or five months um, 
practicing shooting and trying to get more proficient. Um, but one question I have is is on arrow setup and then also broadheads. I've read a lot of articles and, and listened to a lot of podcasts um, talking about um, the different the differences in arrows and and I feel like there's there's quite a difference in opinion between what's more important, weight versus speed. And I kind of want to know your opinion on that um, as I continue to tweak. Yeah, so, I mean, I'm not an archery techie by any means. Um, you know, the, the last serious archery tag I had was in 2016 in Utah uh, on the Beaver unit, and I relied on Brian Rimza and um, my, my hunting partner, Dar, and Daniel Willett over at the Arizona Archery Club. Um, they set me up with, um, the, I think the arrows were 340 grain arrows. Um, and, you know, there's this whole, there's this whole, you know, uh, heavy arrow, uh, slow, and then there's the, you know, shooting fast arrows and, you know, going for penetration. Um, I, I don't think there's any right or wrong um, I tend to think that shooting a little faster is better. Um, you get more penetration, obviously, with a with a uh, carbon arrow. Um, and I just got an Instagram question on that. I definitely think a guy was asking whether slow aluminum or fast carbon. I would say definitely go carbon. Um, I think speed is good because it's you know it flattens out your trajectory. Uh, the the gaps between your pins aren't as big. The, the reality is it all comes down to this. Your shot placement needs to be good, and you need to be able to shoot your bow accurately. So, uh, you know, people can really grind and get too technical on all of the details. It, the reality of this comes down to how are you shooting your bow, how is your arrow flying, how is your broadhead flying. If the answer is I found an arrow that works for me um, and – um, you know, it's it, it's really shooting good. It's flying good. The broadheads are flying good. Then then I wouldn't mess with it. I think people tend to overthink uh, everything, and they end up uh, you know they end up getting in their head rather than just finding a good solid arrow, a good solid broadhead, whether you're going with a mechanical or a fixed. And how are they flying? How accurately can you shoot that bow at to what distance? And uh, to me, accuracy is everything. If you make a good shot, that, the bull's not going anywhere. If you are shooting something and you're not comfortable with it and it's not accurate, you know, when you actually draw back on an elk and, and you're not shooting great at a, at a target, you know, it, it's anybody's guess where that arrow's going to go. So, you know, I would answer it as, find what's shooting best out of your bow and flying best out of your bow and I think you'll be fine. I think the I think my ultimate arrow weight was right at 400 um and I was shooting uh, the um expandable grave digger broadheads with the cut on contact tip um and prior to that I've shot some bulls with the uh, six-blade uh, Muzzy Phantom two-blade, and the reason I went with the two-blade is it, it was incredible penetration. The downside of the two-blade Muzzy Phantom was the fact that it didn't leave a very big blood trail because it didn't leave a very big hole. So, I mean, I, I think you can read, you can listen to too many people and, you know, get your head swimming with ideas. I would, you know, 
rely on a good archery shop to get you set up, and then I would say, what is your bow doing? How are you shooting? Um, you know, what arrow is flying best? What broadhead is flying best? And then go with that. Perfect. So now are you more of a mechanical fan since you've moved kind of towards that broadhead? You know, I just think that the thing about a mechanical and, you know, elk are a big animal and you hit, you know, you hit them in the shoulder regardless um, whether you have a fixed or a mechanical, you know, it's going to bounce off the shoulder. The thing I like about the mechanical is they fly so well. So under pressure, when you're trying to make that shot, if, if you shoot the mechanicals better and, you know, you shoot 100 arrows and, you know, you pattern everything and your pattern and you shoot the mechanicals better, I would go with the mechanicals. If you get a nice, uh, you know, three-blade, two, three, four-blade broadhead, whatever you choose, and you get one that's flying really well and you have confidence, shoot that. I would shoot whatever you think you're the most accurate with because ultimately accuracy is everything. If you put the arrow where you're supposed to, that bull is not going to go anywhere. Well, you know as well as I do, you've heard the horror stories of how tough elk are. That's the reality. But, but it all comes back to if you can shoot that arrow accurately and put it where you need to be, it's a non-discussion. So if you're already planning on making a bad shot, then, you know, yeah, maybe a fixed blade broadhead is better. Maybe, you know, more penetration, is, you know, with a two-blade broadhead is better. But ultimately, you've got to make that shot in the, you know, basketball size um, or, or, you know, a little bit bigger size than a basketball. But generally, you've got to make that basketball size uh, shot and if you can do it just know that the range that you're very comfortable with and you know stick to it I wouldn't you know this is your first archery elk hunt so I would focus more on trying to make a great shot and get a great situation rather than you know the ultimate size of the bull and what have you I would focus on this is my first one I want to make a great clean kill and you know focus on the bread basket and you know, bring home the bacon. I, w I wouldn't get too caught up in, in a lot of other things other than just trying to make your first hunt successful. Right. Okay. That's great advice. Um, now, the next question I have, Jay, is, and this is probably the age-old question that everybody wants to know, is, like, w being in Unit 1, I mean, I know this is my first bull, my first elk tag ever and, and my first bull tag, Um but I also waited 13 years for this tag. Um, I was in the max point round when I drew it, and I, I want to kill a mature bull. Um, what kind of caliber bull, I mean, should I, I be looking for? I, I get people telling me all the time, well, it's your first bull, so you should be shooting the first thing that gives you an opportunity. But I have a hard time, you know, taking that advice when, when I think there's mature bulls in that unit that can be hunted. Well, first thing I would do is I would be self-aware, you know, um, are you in good shape? Are you shooting very well? Do you, can you control your emotions under pressure? Um, you know, do you have the ability to hunt the whole hunt? Um, you know, do you have the ability to go to the very last day and not kill a bull? I think there's a lot of questions you have to ask yourself, and I think every hunter has to ask themselves, ask themself, you know, how much time do I have? If you had said, hey, I have the entire hunt. I, I can hunt every single day. 
and I'm young and I'm fit and, you know, I'm not going to tire. I'm, I'm going to be ready to go 14 mornings in a row and I can shoot very well, you know, out to, out to 50 yards. I'm very, very accurate out to 50 yards. Then I would tell you, you have a pretty good chance to probably be selective and probably find something that's, you know, a, a very nice bull for someone with, with the first tag. The, the problems that I do see a lot are people in your exact position of, they have 13 points. It's taken, you know, 13 years for you to get this tag. And you're thinking, well, geez, it's going to take me another 13 years. Well, I need to shoot a, you know, 380 bull to justify this tag. Well, if you've never shot one, I would say that that's a pretty lofty goal. Is it achievable? Sure. I mean, you, you know, I don't know you. I've never met you. But sure, could you on your first hunt, could you go kill a 390 bull? Well, you could, yes. But in my opinion, I would, this is a good antler growth year. Um, there should be a lot of good bulls. Uh, unit one, uh, the age class has been slipping over the last few years. It's not near as good as it used to be. Um, I think they've got, and, you know, talking to other outfitters up in that area, they've been putting too many late tags in the unit in order to sustain, you know, high, high trophy caliber bulls. But with that being said, you know, there's probably going to be a 390 or maybe even a 400-inch bull shot in Unit 1 this year. It's just too good of a year. Um, there are still a few older age class bulls around, and, and, you know, there's still a few true giants around. I think you will see a lot of bulls probably in that 300 to, you know, 330 range. Uh, I think you'll see you know, a lot of bulls in that caliber. I think then you'll see a handful of bulls in that 330 to 350 range. And then I would bet that you could potentially see, depending on the amount of time that you put in, I think you could potentially see, you know, a, a, a bull or two, you know, 360 to 390. I, I, I really do. Um, but the meatball of bulls, you know, the meat of what you're going to see are going to be those, you know, 300 to 350. 3335 type bulls. So what you need to ask yourself is like, you know, have you put your hands on a 335 bull and have you seen those on the wall and how do they look to you? Is that something that you'd be tickled pink at the end of the hunt if you had a beautiful 330, 335 six point? Um, my bet is the answer would be yes. If you say, nope, I, I want to, you know, I want this is my chance and I'm young and I'm fit and I can go and I've got a long time to hunt, you know, then, then, and your scouting's going great and you're seeing a lot of really good bulls, uh, then, you know, then you can up the ante and, you know, if you're willing to pass up some bulls, um, the, the real question is to be a trophy hunter, you have to be able to go the entire hunt and walk away and eat the tag or burn the tag and, and say, I didn't get one. So you have to kind of be self-aware as to what, you know, would you be okay with going without one? Or is there a, you know, do you have a threshold of, oh, if I got a 330 bowl, I'd be tickled pink, or a, a 320 bowl, or a 300 bowl, or, um, you know, no, I want a 350 plus, and that's what I'm going for, and if I don't get one, I'm, I'm not going to fill my tag. So I wouldn't let anybody tell you what your own trophy expectation should be but I will tell you, if it's your first time, I would highly recommend focusing on a great opportunity, a great situation, and making a clean, ethical kill 
and, you know, just, just getting the full experience of getting one of your, you know, first bull elk under your belt with a bow. See, and Jay, I, as, I, as you went through and explained that, I was checking boxes in my mind of, of what I, um, the criteria that I meet in, those, in that situation. And my biggest concern, my biggest worry is, is I've never drawn a bow, uh, I've never drawn a bow back on a beagling bull before. Like I don't know how I don't know how I'm going to react. I don't know if my arrow is going to be, you know, shaking off the rest or what's going to be going on. So that I mean, any advice for for someone? Yeah, I mean, it it happens. So I mean, if you're the type of person that gets gets highly energized and you know emotions run high and you can get jazzed up pretty quick, you can already anticipate that it's probably going to be a pretty thrilling moment. If you're the type that's you know pretty pretty easy going and and things don't rattle you too much then you know you you're probably going to be cool as a cucumber most that i've seen including myself uh even to this day when you draw back on on any animal but particularly a bull that's bugling it's a pretty high emotion deal so you know that goes to several trains of thought you know do you go out there and you try and draw back and draw on animals and basically pick a spot and do go through the whole routine and don't pull the trigger and let them walk off and you know, let the bow down. Do you do that to practice a little bit on a few animals? Well, I think it's a great thing to do. Just be prepared that if you pull that trigger for whatever reason and it, the bow goes off that you're happy with whatever you shoot. The one downside as well with that is I've heard of guys doing that and make the emotions get the best of them and they're pulled or put their pin right where it needs to be. And, you know, instead of just kind of holding it there and focusing and trying to go through your checklist, you end up pulling the trigger and then you think, what the heck did I do? So, you know, you have to decide, are you not ever going to draw until it's, it's go time? Um, you know, are you going to get in that position and rather than pull the string, are you going to like physically lift your bow and kind of go through the motion without actually pulling the bow back? I don't know what the right answer is for you other than you, when you're practicing shooting, you have to have kind of a checklist that you go through, whatever it may be, you know, your different anchor points, your, how, how everything you have to go through that process. And you, every shot that you shoot in practice should be just like if you were drawing on a bull elk. And for the next, you know, month and a half, you should kind of train yourself to put yourself in the position. I come from a golf background, and, you know, when you're putting on the putting green, how many putts have, have I putted to? This is to win the match. This is to win the hole. This is to win the tournament. And, you know, pretend and put yourself in the position of executing you know, that shot at the right time. Um, no one is going to be able to tell you how to control your emotions. You are the best one at controlling your emotions. You know yourself better than anyone. But I can tell you, you have to have a checklist, um, and you have to go through it fairly systematically and um, try and make yourself calm down because, you know, lots of people that I know I've seen them shake so hard they can't even get their bow back. So, you know, you have to embrace that. If you know you're that type of person, make sure you have a checklist. Make sure that you follow the checklist. Make sure that you breathe and get yourself calmed down to where you can perform. 
And that's part of being an archery hunter. That's part of being a bow hunter. Can you, can you control your emotions? Can you make it happen? Can you execute the shot and, and, you know, physically get yourself to be in control of all aspects of your senses and make it happen? And the reality is you don't really know till it happens, but you can dang sure practice and, you know, kind of prepare your mind for what you're about to do. Right. And that's what I've been trying to do, just shoot as much as possible and and try to predict the way I'm going to react. But I know, I mean, I've shot a deer with my bow, and that's completely different than a, a bugling elk. So I'm I'm anxious to see how that experience is. Now, right. Jay, and I mean, the reality, too, is, is Christian, just, just you will do a lot better if you just have fun with it. If you embrace the fact that you're going to be nervous, embrace it. If you say, okay, here it comes, and talk yourself through it. Okay, go through my checklist, whatever that may be. You know, get your stance right. Get, you know, draw your bow back. Okay, now I put the string on my nose. Okay, focus on your pin. Okay, now I'm looking through my pin. Put it on a spot. Pick a spot. I'm not going to release the arrow until I'm perfectly ready. You know, if you whatever your checklist is, if you can go through that routinely within your practice, you will be a whole lot better. And if you can shoot standing up, sitting down, uh, you know, kneeling down, excuse me, on your knees. Uh, in front of trees, behind trees, through, you know, through gaps of trees and windows, you know, you, you know, range find your target. I don't know where you shoot, but if you can get to where you shoot one arrow, and that's what used to help me is I would, I would range and shoot one arrow, go get my arrow. I would range and shoot one arrow, go get my arrow. I'd go at this angle, I'd go to my knees, I would just shoot one arrow, go get your arrow. And just that, making the one shot count uh, rather than just, it's like going to the driving range and just flinging a whole bucket of balls out there. No, I mean, I would take, you know, shoot one arrow and, you know, how did I do? Okay, I need to shoot that shot again. Okay, I've got that shot down. Now I'm going to go shoot this. But ranging your animal, if you're going to use a range finder, which I would assume you are, go through that process on the range, not just, oh, I know this is 20 yards, so it's my 20-yard pin. Well, are you going to do that in the field? No. You're going to range your animal more than likely every time. So range the, the, the target and shoot the shot, just like you would in a hunting situation. Right. That makes perfect sense. Now, as far as, as bugling bulls, Jay, I mean, when we, think, when we talk about calling, do you feel that guys call too much? Do you think they don't call enough? Because that's another question that I've had, having not done this before, is how much should I be calling? Well, I think a lot of it goes back to how good a caller are you. I mean, when you call, do your buddies say you sound really good? Or do the, your buddies, you have to find someone to be honest with you and tell you if you sound good or not. If, if you can't, if your buddies aren't like, wow, that's pretty darn good, then you probably don't need to be calling a whole lot because if your buddies go, yeah, I can really tell that's a human, that doesn't sound right, you think a bull elk that's, you know, eight years old can't distinguish between a bad call and a good call. So if, if you're self-aware and you realize that, hey, I'm not the greatest caller, then I probably wouldn't call a whole lot. Um, although I would tell you some, 
some of the best callers I know call too much. They're just so infatuated with how good they call. They just call way too much. Calling is one of those things that, uh, you know, it, it should be circumstantial. It should be only used, in my opinion, it, you know, if you can stalk within bow range of a bull without making a peep, that's what I'm going to do every time. Even though I love the call and I love to see the reaction, I'm going to get in their range before I even make a peep, before they even know I'm there. And if I can shoot them, and it's a sh the, the bull that I'm after, if I can shoot them without making a peep, I'm going to do that. I think too many people rely on the call because they, they don't have any stalking ability and they don't have the ability to slip in close on elk, so they start blowing a call. I think way too many people call way too much, and I think way too many people need to get a whole lot better at calling before they even make a call. I think the, the enjoyment of elk hunting is great that, you know, oh, I called them in and all of that, but the reality is most people that call actually hurt themselves. That's my opinion, especially in Arizona where, you know, a lot of those elk have heard a lot of different sounds and they know what's good and what's not good. Right. So, I mean, do you think that the rutting activity and, and the elk are just going to be screaming in Unit 1 or, or should I expect it, not to, it to be pretty quiet? I I think it's going to be a pretty good year as far as bugling. Um, I believe your hunt starts on Friday, what, the, is it the, the 13th? 13th? Okay. Yeah. So the only challenge is that opening weekend, I believe the 14th or 15th is a full moon. I, I, I haven't looked at the calendar lately, but I, it's, I think right there, right around a full moon. So, you know, my my bet is the first day or two they're going to bugle pretty good, um, but then the pressure usually that after that Saturday afternoon of all that pressure in the unit, you get that Sunday lull. Um, I think especially with it being a full moon, I would expect they'll bugle like crazy at night, and they might be pretty quiet. Um, you know, might bugle good for the first 30, 40 minutes, but then they're going to shut up. They're going to go, you know, they've been up all night, so they're going to go find a place to nap up, and they're going to be fairly quiet during the day would be my bet. Um, I think towards the end of the hunt, it's probably going to be chaos as that moon starts uh, to get smaller and it starts to be darker at night. My, my bet will be that the bulls will, you know, the rut, the intensity of the bugling and what have you should get better and better and better as that season goes on. So I, I have both weeks to hunt, Jay. Um, but, I mean, I would, I would like to be able to go back and go to work, you know, a couple days out of that two-week period. Um, and I, I read Go Hunt's article today about the moon phases, and, and, and you're absolutely right. The full moon starts on that four, the 14th and kind of goes through that first part. So would you recommend, you know, making sure that I have every day of that second week and, and trying to... That's to what I would do. The first week or... Okay. For sure. That, I mean, I think the beginning of the hunt is going to be uh, a little bit slow. I think the moon's going to have them a little bit sluggish. I wouldn't be surprised if opening day they're bugling pretty good. Uh, but honestly, I think, you know, that... that you know, potentially that Monday, Tuesday of that first week, um, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, probably pretty slow. If, if, if you, you know, have to go back and work a few days, I would definitely work more on the front end than the back end. I would leave the whole back end open. 
Um, I think the rut is the bugling activity is going to just get stronger and stronger and stronger. I think a uh, few people will harvest out and be done and out of your hair. Um, I, I, I just think, you know, that, that second weekend and for sure the last, you know, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday before the hunt's probably going to be some great days uh, of hunting. So, you know, if you had to work a few days, I'd probably work them on the front end and leave the back end open for, you know, uninterrupted hunting. Okay, awesome. Um, Jay, another thing I've been considering is uh, is using a decoy. I've I used one for for deer hunting, the ultimate predator style that actually connects to the front of your bow. And I wonder what your thoughts are on on that style of a decoy for archery elk. Yeah, um, let's hold that question for just a second. I want to thank the sponsors of this podcast, and then I'll answer that question. I want to thank GoHunt.com Insider. Uh, Christian, you just mentioned you read that article of GoHunt. The Insider, right now, you can uh, go to GoHunt.com forward slash J. Scott. You can get a 30-day free trial of the Insider program. Uh, That's going to allow you to go in and check out all of the draw odds which uh, the insider is known for, the harvest statistics, the harvest data. Uh, you can read all the strategy articles for the different units and states and different animals. Um, they do a very, very good job of comparing, you know, the, the draw odds from, you know, a couple of years ago to now, and you can kind of figure out where you need to be on these different states. Go to gohunt.com forward slash Scott. You're going to get a 30-day free trial. Also, my friend Cody Nelson is the optics manager there at the GoHunt.com gear shop. Uh, If you have any optical needs at all, you can reach out to him at 702-847-8747. That's extension 2. You can email him at optics at GoHunt.com. Also, I want to remind you guys, right now, the month of July, they have a $1,000 GoHunt gear shop giveaway uh, raffle going on. All you have to do is purchase something either through the GoHunt uh, gear shop or call Cody on the phone and purchase uh, something uh, through Cody, and you're, you just tell him you want to enter into the GoHunt drawing. Uh, use the JSO, that's JSO promo code. If you spend, it's dollar for dollar entry. So if you spend $12, you get 12 entries. If you spend $2,000, you get 2,000, uh, uh, 2,000 entries. Uh, Ed Foster out of Yuma, Arizona, won the June giveaway, and he won the $1,000 gift card. Uh, Here in about a week, they're going to be giving away uh, the the July card. So to enter, just tell tell Cody or uh, on the website, if you order directly at GoHunt.com Gear Shop, just enter the promo code JSO, and uh, you're going to uh, win or have a chance to win the $1,000 gift card. I also want to thank Kuyu Ultralight Hunting. Uh, if you need to find out more, you can always check out my question and answer on Instagram. I answer a lot of questions about Kuyu gear. Uh, go to Also go to KUIU.com. That's Kuyu.com to find out more. Uh, Phonescope.com. If you use the JScott19 promo code, you're going to get a 10% discount. And then on X Maps, uh, if you're uh, going to sign up for Onyx Maps. Just use the JScott19 promo code. You're going to get a 20% discount. Christian, to answer your question about the decoy, I've never used decoys a whole lot. Um, the one thing I can tell you, there's pros and cons. Uh, the cons are sometimes 
if you have that on the end of your bow and you're calling a bull, a lot of times they're going to see the decoy. Um, some would say they'll come right to it. Some would say, okay, they see you and they're going to hang up and expect you to come to them. Um, I have heard and have seen situations where whether it's a decoy on, on the bow with a cow, you know, cow elk's face or what have you, or someone standing behind you with one of those Montana-style, you know, decoys, I have heard and I have seen them work. Um, my, I would probably prefer to not have them see me at all and not know where I'm at. I would prefer to use my stocking skills and use my calling skills to call them by me and not looking at me. I feel like with that um, decoy on your bow, they're going to be looking right at you, um, you know, and I've heard of it working. I've heard of it, you know, guys literally walking right out a group of elk and having it work. Um, but I also think you're going to get elk that are facing you. You're going to get a lot of those front up on shots. Uh, so I would say I, I wouldn't use that if it were me. I would use my call, use my hand to direct the call, um, you know, one way or another to get them to walk by you so you have a, you know, broadside or quartering shot. And um, I would probably not use the decoy. But you can mess with it as well, um, scouting, and you can mess with it even on the hunt. And if it's really working for you, then use it. If, if you use it a couple times and, and it, it blows it for you, then I'd probably um, not use it. Okay. So you'd focus more on just being stealthy and, and getting in there. Now, yeah, I mean, how do they're you... pretty loud animals, and you know, they're if they're bugling, you can you can very easily keep the wind in your face and just keep being persistent and work your way in there. They're not necessarily super keen on, uh, you know, their vision is great, but when they're feeding, they're rutting, they're, there's chaos, you know, there's bulls fighting. You have the ability to slip in there. I prefer to slip in and and not let any elk know exactly where I'm at and not even know I'm in the country would be my preference at all times. So is that the key, Jay, just keeping that wind in your face, trying to stay parallel? Yeah. Then? So you've got to get a wind checker and get a bunch of those bottles and be constantly, that is always in my hand at all times. I'm always checking the wind. I'm constantly, as I'm stalking, bulls are bugling, I'm constantly checking the wind because they are going to be walking into the wind as well. So that's the trick. How do you get in front of an elk that's always walking into the wind? You have to kind of go at a parallel with them with the wind in your face and the winds in their face, and you have to kind of slide alongside them until you get that situation where you can get close enough, you're paralleling them, where you can get just maybe in front of them and where they're going to walk by you. Um, but constantly be squeezing those bottles and keep it. If they smell you, the whole thing's over with. There's, they can see you and you can get away with it. You, they can hear you and you can get away with it. But if they smell you, the whole thing is up. They'll spook and run and bark and you, you might as well find another group of elk to chase. So you've got to have, you know, on a, on a two-week archery hunt, I would probably say a minimum minimum of five bottles of that wind checker, you know, and I would probably have 10 or more in my camp just so that I, and I always have an extra. I always have two of those. I have one in my hand and a, and a backup always um, because, you know, the wind is the most important thing and you've got to keep the wind right.
So, Julie, when, when you have that wind in your face like that and you're parallel on those bulls, I mean, how close are you typically getting to them? I mean, are you within 30 yards? It depends yards on the terrain. Yeah, I mean, it depends on the terrain, and it depends on what I'm trying to do. But I'm going to parallel. If I'm in pinion juniper country, I can be 15 yards away from them, and they, you know, they think I'm another elk. But normally, I try and stay like 40 or 50 yards kind of out to the side of them. Sometimes it could be 100. And I'm trying to parallel, parallel, parallel until I know that there's an opening or something coming up that if I can get up there and kind of cut, you know, fish hook in. So if I'm out at 50 yards and I can ease my way and then real pretty quickly close that gap, so I'm paralleling, and then I fish hook in, let's say the elk's on my left, and I fish hook into the left, giving me a 25, 30-yard shot, and the cows are filtering by, and then all of a sudden the bull comes out, and you've got the bull broadside. Um, you know, what I try and do is get visual on the bull, and if I go, that's the bull, that's the one that I want, I recognize his bugle, I, rec I try and remember his, his chuckle, the way he does things, you know, does he never chuckle? Does he just go high note? Does he only chuckle and he never goes high note? You know, does he glunk a lot? You know, you get to where you can recognize their voice if there's multiple bulls. You, I focus on one elk. So one, I pick one bull, and that's the bull that I go after. And you hear other bulls bugling. I don't even care about them. I bound my shooter and I'm going to then parallel and focus, get the wind right, and then just keep trying to button hook in on that herd until you get in the position where you get your shot. If you don't know what the bull is, you can do the same thing, but it's hard when there's five or six bulls bugling because you get to where you don't, you're, okay, I'll go after this one. Okay, now this one sounds closer. I'll go after this one. Okay, and you just pinball around. You have to kind of weed through bulls and I use my binoculars as well, and I go, okay, I just heard a bull bugle. I ease over there by him. Okay, he's a dink. I don't want him. So now I've recognized how he bugles, and when he bugles again, I'm like, okay, that's the dink. Okay, yeah, that's the big bull. I want to see that mature bull. You slide in, keep paralleling, look with your binos. Okay, he's not as good as I thought. Immediately, I'm done with those two bulls. I'm now focused on other elk. It's, it's a matter of weeding through bulls in order to find the one you're looking for. So when you're chasing bugles, you know, you have to eliminate. If you've already eliminated that bull and you know it's his bugle, go the exact opposite direction and find new, a new bull or a new group of elk. Um, sometimes if I've looked at four or five bulls and they're not my bull that I want to shoot, I literally turn, do an about face, and walk you know, a half mile or a mile in another direction or two miles and get into a whole different group of bulls, check them out. So it's, it's I don't waste time. I, I, I check them out and I'm on the move, you know, trying, if it's not the bull I'm after or not a shooter bull, I'm immediately switching gears going after and trying to look at other ones. It's just like glassing. If you're up glassing elk and you don't see a shooter bull and you see a group, just keep panning, keep moving, keep, you know, pop around, look on the other side of the ridge, spin around. You know, that's why I like knobs that are, you can glass 360 because I'm like, okay, not a shooter, not a shooter. Okay, here's a good one. Let me get my spotting scope out. Okay, he's not a shooter. And I just, I'm eliminating. I don't, I don't waste a lot of time on elk that I don't want to go after. 
So now, Jay, if you find a bull, um, let's say you come in and you, you, whatever, you blow the opportunity and it's a shooter and it's a really good bull, do you spend the rest of your hunt focusing on that bull or is it a numbers game and you're just trying to find more bulls of that caliber? It depends on what my goal is. If there's a particular bull that I want to kill, I'll spend the whole hunt on him. My, my beaver hunt in Utah in 2016 was that case. Found a 7x7 seven seven bull and I had two opportunities at him that I, that I did not capitalize on and I spent the entire time hunting that bull. So I wasn't like going in different country. I wasn't, I focused on that bull. The only way to kill a bull you're after is to literally put all your eggs in that basket. I would encourage you if, you know, this is your first time, I wouldn't get too caught up on one particular bull or another. I would just try and find a, a good solid bull and have a good experience and a good encounter. Again, you have to ask yourself, are you okay with shooting a bull on the first day and making a great shot and, you know, having a successful hunt? If you want more of it, if you want more of the experience out of it, then say, you know, I'm not going to shoot anything unless it's over 300 for the first seven days, and then after that I'm going to shoot anything over 300 or pick whatever number you want. Um, you know, I, it, it baffles me sometimes how people tell other people what they should do or what they should expect. It's your tag. It's not mine. You know, if you want to kill a giant, the only way to kill a giant is to focus on a giant and kill him. If you want to kill a 350, the only way to kill a 350 is to find a 350 and kill him. Well, if you're looking at 320 bulls and wasting your whole morning calling and dinking around with a, a bull that's not a shooter that you don't want, you're wasting that morning. So I look at it like it's a numbers game. I have to pick through and find you know, the bull that I'm after or find calibers of bulls that I would be happy with. So only you can answer that question. But once you make your mind up, you have to kind of make a plan and say, this is what I'm going to do. If, if, if I get a chance at a six-point bull under 30 yards, I'm killing him. I don't care how big he is. That's great. That's your tag. That's your opportunity. You're the only one that can dictate what you're going to do. Right. Now, when you have bugling bulls like that, Jay, can you kind of tell the size by the bugle, or, or is I know it's not a perfect science, but can you kind of tell it's if it's not a, a perfect big bull or not? It's not a perfect science, but what I can tell you is a lot of times the bulls with more volume, the bulls with deeper sounding, um, you know, resonance on the back end of their bugle, typically will be a more mature bull, and so a more mature bull a lot of times has bigger antlers. So I have heard beautiful sound and bugling six-point bulls that just sound beautiful and they're giants, but they just sound like any other bull. So it's not, it's not a perfect science, but definitely bulls that have a lot of volume, um, definitely bulls that have a lot of real deep growl and, and back end, a lot of times are those older age class bulls. Well, most of the time, older age class bulls are going to have bigger antlers. Sometimes they don't score as well as a, a younger, you know, clean six-point bull. But they'll definitely have more mass and, you know, be a more mature bull for sure. Okay. Now, uh, kind of going back to the moon phase a little bit, with it being a full moon, I mean, do you suggest going out way, way early, I mean, hours before the sun comes up and just listening to these bulls and trying to figure out where the pockets are? 
Well, you got to go off of your moon. Your moon is, you know, I would say you would probably be better off to go after an evening hunt to go have dinner and then, you know, at, at 9, 10, 11, 12 o'clock at night be out listening. And then typically that moon, you know, starts to starts to shrink um, and those, those elk may try and kind of bed down a little bit and you'll have kind of that doldrum, you'll have that, kind of dead period, maybe an hour or two before light, I would say just try it. I would go out a few nights and say, you know, are they bugling at 9, 10 o'clock at night or from your camp? Or, you know, in a two-week period from your camp, you'll be like, wow, um, they were bugling from 1 a.m. to 2 a.m. like crazy for three or four nights in a row. And, you know, a week before that, they weren't they weren't bugling at all. It was quiet. Or right before the sun came up, they were bugling for two or three hours and then, it, you know, and then they got quiet. Um, my bet would be that you just have to kind of feel it out and what are the elk doing? So I would, um, after the evening hunt, I would drive back to camp, have dinner and maybe go drive around for an hour and just listen what's going on. And then, you know, depending on how it's going, you may wake up at you know, sleep for two or three or four hours and wake up at midnight and go drive around from midnight to two and just see, okay, they're, they're quiet as a mouse or no, they're bugling their guts out. And then you might also get up, you know, I get up really, really early always um, for, for elk season um, because I like to get out there and see what's going on a good hour before it's even light. Are they bugling? Are they not bugling? Where are the trucks at? Where do I hear people, you know, and, and I always like to be early in case where I go is, is that area shot. So I have the ability to move. If, if I'm running late in gray light, then I don't have the ability. If I pull up where I want to be and there's three trucks, I don't have the ability to move. Or I move and it's already too late. So I'd recommend, you know, set the alarm for 3 o'clock every morning and get up and, you know, get out to your spot and be the first one there and, you know, don't be making a bunch of racket, but be in position and listening and, and uh, you know, like, oh, there's, there's bulls bugling like crazy. And then, you know, as it starts to get more and more light, all of a sudden there's trucks around and those bulls clam up. Well, you know, because you've been sitting there listening to them in the dark, you know that there was eight different bulls bugling and they kind of faded back, you know, to the north or the, the east or whatever. And you're like, I know where they're going because they all, as soon as the traffic started, they started heading this way. Well, you, it's still dark. You can make a big loop and, you know, go cut them off. So, you know, right. sleep sleep during the middle of the day and, you know, figure the elk out at night and, and um, use that time to, you know, figure out what they're doing. So now with, with there being 300 permits in that unit, do you think that um, other hunting pressure is going to be a big issue? Yeah, I mean, it's going to be a zoo. Don't let anybody tell you it's not. Unit 1, you know, for years was 150 tags. It's now 300. It's going to be a zoo. There's going to be people. The, the fun thing about Unit 1 is, it, it, you know, even with the 300 people, they seem to bugle pretty darn good. So you, in my mind, I would try and pick areas that are not easy to get to. I would try and pick areas that, you know, every Tom, Dick, and Harry isn't going to be out there blowing a call and squeezing a hoochie mama trying to you know mess with it sometimes the biggest bulls can be right in the biggest pocket of you know there's six trucks around and 
you know, 10 bolts bugling and everybody knows about them. Um, so you have to chase them wherever they're at. But if it were me on your first hunt, I would, I would probably hunt some of the fringe areas and hunt some of the areas that, you know, everybody won't be so you can enjoy the experience. But you're definitely going to have mornings where you hear guys calling, you hear guys driving through right through the middle of your area on quads. You're, you're going to have a bunch of that. You're just going to have to deal with it. You're just going to have to have a good attitude and just keep plugging away. But you can almost anticipate where the people are going to be, you know, where are the main campsites, where, you know, if guys can hear bulls bugling from their camp, a lot of times they'll just chase them right from their camp. So what are they going to do? They're probably going to chase them. They'll be camped on the edge of a meadow. The bulls will be out in the meadow. The elk will be there. And they're going to go out the back side where there's not camps. That's, you can predict, almost predict ahead of time what the elk are going to do because of, you know, where the people are and, you know, the way that people are going to be, people are lazy. So they're going to, they're going to take the path of least resistance and you can almost predict how they're going to chase those bulls. But if you find those areas too that are, you know, steep and deep, you find those areas that, you know, big canyons, you find those areas that maybe, maybe you've got a block of, you know, a mile and a half or so where there's no roads. I mean, those are some of the areas that I just like hunting where there's not a lot of people that's that's my preference i would rather chase one bull that has nobody messing with them than chase another bull that has you know five people messing with them well, i think that's good advice too because i mean i've dreamt of a tag like this since i was a little kid and so i want a lot of that experience like i want to be right in the thick of bugling bulls and hopefully fighting bulls and so I, I think I agree with you. I think I want to focus more on the fringes and try to stay away from people so I can be out there with the elk, you know? Yeah. The one thing I would tell you, too, in Unit 1 that, I, you know, I said earlier, but you really need to focus on if you have the ability to go up, say, September 1st and on. So once they get into the quote-unquote rutting grounds, I would really, really focus on those glassing knobs. And there's glassing, great glassing knobs out on the east part of that unit, the north part of that unit, um, you know, even some of the stuff in the burn, and really figure out where where those elk are, find out, okay, there's a big group of elk, but, you know, there's, there's going to be, it's right off a main road, so more than likely everybody's going to be chasing them. Okay, where are the, those elk going to go? Um, I would be glassing my brains out the two weeks before the hunt and trying to bounce around on different knobs and get to know a bunch of different places where there's elk and bugling bulls. Um, so, and, and, you know, I, I'm notorious for even when the hunt starts up on a glassing knob with my bow with me and trying to figure them out with my eyes and find a particular bull or find a particular group of elk and not even hunting. I'm up glassing when other people are out there chasing bugles. Um, so, you know, monitoring them and figuring out what they're doing and trying to be efficient with your stocks is, is, is a huge part of it. Another part of it is, if, like I said, if you're chasing one particular bull or if you find a bull a week before the season and you're like, I want to hunt that bull for one week, then you need to stay to your plan of being in that area for one week and stick to it. Maybe in the morning you're going to just go glass, try and spot them, and then go after them. Or maybe you're going to go up and glass that morning, and okay, there he was. He went out the tree line that way. 
So I'm going to be over there in the afternoon. I bet he's bedded up in there. So I'm going to kind of and plan where you're going to be. Um, if if you're trying to kill anybody out there that's listening, not necessarily you, Christian. If you're out there and you've hunted a lot of bugling bulls and you've killed a lot, you're trying to kill a big one. Like your most efficient way to kill a big one is to put your eyes on him, figure out where he's going, and be in his pocket, be in his zone. If you're just randomly willy-nilly chasing bugles you're going to have to weed through so many bulls to get and find that big bull. So use your eyes to find and be like, I know he comes in and out of this meadow every single morning and every single evening. Well, why would you be anywhere else messing with any other elk just for fun to hear him bugling? If you're trying to kill that bull, be in his pocket. It's like, if you're fishing and you know that that one big fish hangs out by one rock and he's always by the rock, why would you be anywhere else other than that rock? That makes perfect sense. Now, Jay, let's say um, hopefully everything goes, goes together as planned and I do shoot a bull. I hear horror stories all the time about bulls that get shot and then guys try to go after them too quick and they, they run a mile, two miles away. How long do you wait once you've shot a bull to go look for him? If I shoot a bull and I, I immediately when I shoot a bull, I try and get, you know, if I know I shot him good, I try and watch him either with my binos or with my eyes and I try and watch him go down. I try and I obviously don't want him to know that I'm there. So I try and stay in the same spot. But if I can, you know, put my bow down real fast and put my binos up and be watching him and be looking for, okay, where is the arrow? Where is the blood? I see blood on the left, but I don't see blood on the right. Or I've got full penetration. The arrow went through. I've got blood on both sides. Where is the blood dripping? Is it, is it low? Is it high? You know, he's turned broadside. How is it in relation to the shoulder? How far back is it? How high is it? I'm trying to pick up any bit of information that I can get from where is my hit. If, if I don't see him go down, I'm going to wait 30 minutes every time even if i know i know i double lunged them 30 minutes minimum i stand in the same spot i don't even go look for my arrow i sit down i get some water i regroup i text my buddy whatever it may be you stay there for 30 minutes even if if you, unless you see him wobbling and go down and literally you put your binos on and you can see it that like you know he's dead you don't move. You do not move for 30 minutes. You don't go over 40 yards to where you saw him and where you hit him and look for blood. You want to so bad to go look for blood. You stay right where you shoot, minimum of 30 minutes, period. End of story. No discussion. 30 minutes. You don't move outside of a three-yard circle, period. If you know you've hit him good after 30 minutes, you, whether you call your buddy or whatever you're going to do, then go ahead and go over. So mark that spot on your GPS. Mark it with flagging tape, whatever you need to do. That's the spot of origin, okay? That's where you shot from. Always mark the spot. Then get in the exact position where, he was, where you were and go, he was right there, and you walk immediately right over there. You try and look for his exact track and go, he was standing right here. You don't wander over here and want, go exact straight line to where he was. Then you try and look at his tracks immediately. You look down. 
that's his track, okay? Try and recognize that is his track. That's the size of it. You know, take a picture of it. Do whatever you've got to do. Take a mental picture of it. That's his track. Is there any blood in the track? Is there any blood anywhere? Okay, that track. Then where did he go? Okay, I see where he ran out. There's his track, okay? He's got, you know, if, if you track enough, and, and I'm not some expert tracker, but you can get to where you see a track and you can get to another track and go, no, the bull arm's got a much bigger or smaller track than that. Like, their, their, their tracks are different. Some of them are very similar, but, you know, you can be like, no, that's a cow elk. This is a bull elk. This is, this is my bull, okay? He's bleeding on his left side. I mean, there's all sorts of stuff, but go to the track and then mark the spot where you shot the bull. Then you immediately pick up your binos and you're scanning the direction that you saw him go. You're scanning, scanning with your binoculars. Take a couple steps on his track and you're scanning. Then you're looking, oh, here's my arrow. What's the arrow? Oh, it's covered in blood. Oh, there's bubbles in the blood. Oh, it's bright red blood. Oh, it's, you know, I can see slime and there's gut. You know, you pick up all those details and you know, on your Onyx, hit the tracker so it's tracking your exact steps so that if you don't find them, you've got, okay, we, I followed his tracks for, you know, 300 yards. At least you have a line in the direction he went. So you stay for 30 minutes no matter what. If you know you made a horrible shot and you gut shot him, like you know you just punched him right in front of the back hips and it's a perfect gut shot, I wouldn't do anything. I would not even go in the direction the bull went for six hours minimum. That's minimum. And quite possibly 12 hours if you know you got shot him 100%. See, and that's one of my biggest fears, Jay, is, is not making a good shot. I mean, do you, do you typically, like, not take the shot unless it's a broadside within the distance you're comfortable Don't with? Don't take the shot you take shots? perfect. Don't take okay. the shot unless it's perfect. You're there to kill the elk. You're not there to, to wound the elk. You don't take the shot unless it's a perfect shot that you know you can make. If you shoot the bull and he's, you hit him and he's standing around and you can get another arrow, you shoot that bull anywhere you can hit him. It doesn't, you shoot the bull. All I had was a going away butt shot. You shoot the bull as many times as you have to shoot him until that bull is done and done kicking if you if you're stalking up on the bull after the hit and you look up and you see his head up and you right there from where you are standing can slowly knock an arrow and shoot that bull anywhere and you know it's the bull get another arrow in him anywhere you can hit the bull You shoot again, and if the, bull, if the bull stands up, knock another arrow. You shoot until you're out of arrows, until the bull's dead. Period. I don't care if you know you made a perfect shot. I, I shot a bull. I shot a 406-inch bull uh, perfectly, double-lunged, and he was standing there wobbling around, and he spun around. I shot. I drew back and shot him again, going right through the other way. Perfect. Two double-lunged shots. You, you do not stop shooting until you know that the bull is dead. And once you know the bull's hit, you shoot the bull any... Of course you want to shoot him in the vitals. Of course you want to make as good a second shot as you possibly can. But you shoot him anywhere you can hit him if you have to on the second, third, fourth shot. 
I mean, let's face it, you're there to kill the bull. You need to, you, you shoot, you, you shoot from where you're at. I wouldn't move at him because if he's standing and you have a shot, shoot. You don't want him to see you. You don't want to walk over and have him run off. You want to hit him as many times as you can with your arrow. Right. CJ, that, this advice is gold. This is what us rookie hunters don't get. So I really appreciate it. Well, um, is that all your questions or you got more? I do have one question, Jay, before we end that uh, I promised a friend that I would ask you. I promised I wouldn't get off the podcast once I asked this question. Um, okay. So if you have a moment, he has a late season archery bull um, unit 5A. And his question is, is, is it better in that hunt to, to uh, spot and stock or to sit water? It all depends on what the conditions are like. If it's very dry leading up to the hunt, sitting water can be extremely effective. Is it an archery or a rifle hunt? It's an archery hunt. Okay. So that those late season archery hunts can be extremely difficult to stock elk because a lot of times on those late hunts, those elk have, you know, the, after the rut, and those bulls are going to the steepest, darkest, nastiest, timberiest, just trashiest place they can go. Why? Because they don't want to be bothered. They want to be able to feed and recuperate after the rut. So stocking on late hunts can be very, very difficult. So what he can hope for is that it is dry leading up to the hunt and you know, he can run some cameras and try and figure out what water holes are best and what bulls are frequenting them. But those late archery hunts are completely different than the early archery hunts. And I would highly recommend sitting water uh, if it's dry now. If it's just been raining and snowing and wet, uh, it's going to be pretty darn tough. If there's water in every pothole, and you can judge, you know, is there water everywhere driving down the road and all the ditches, all the creek bottoms, there's water? They're probably not going to come consistently enough to water to be efficient. So then you're going to have to use your eyeballs to spot and stalk. So um, he, he, you know, any of those, anybody listening that has late archery um, tags, whether it's a right, you know, obviously a rifle is a little bit easier because you can shoot further, but it's still tough. Those bulls are going to be in the nasty timber, they're going to be on the north-facing slopes, the northeast-facing slopes. They're going to be in the manzanita. They're going to be in just the mahogany and the, you know, the thick, thick brush, um, and they can be very, very tough. But that, that hope that answers this question. Sure. Thank you, Jay, man. I really appreciate all the, the answers to my questions and the advice, and hopefully I can get it done this season. Good, man. I uh, appreciate uh, you reaching out, and uh, hopefully you have a great hunt. I want you to fill us in on how things are going. If you have any questions between now and then, feel free to shoot me up, uh, hit me up on Instagram, at uh, jscottoutdoors. Just send me a direct message. You can also email me, uh, jscottoutdoors at gmail.com. Uh, I appreciate uh, you. I think a lot of other people probably have some of the same questions, so they, they'll get some value out of this. And, uh, yeah, just wish you the best and um, hope, hope you have a great hunt. Remember to just enjoy it. It's your first one. Uh, you want everything to be perfect. Uh, and, you know, don't put so much pressure on yourself as the size of bull, what have you. 
just enjoy it and um, try and be as efficient as you can. And um, you're, you're going to have a great time. It should be a great year, and, and um, you've got a great unit. So um, I, I hope you do really well. Thank you, Jay. I really appreciate that. All right, buddy. God bless. Take care. You too, man. Thank you.